the dust blows forward and the dust blows back. Down in Dachau Blues. All the pots you build. Well, the goldfish, the harmonious dance. Ratchet buds burst. Welcome to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm guest hosting for Darren Husted, uh, who has allowed me to take on the quixotic task of discussing all 28 tracks on Captain Beefheart and his Magic Band's epical double album, Trout Mask Replica. Uh, today, we are beginning at the beginning. Track one, side one, Frownland. Uh, this was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale in March of 1969. The personnel is uh, Bill Harkelroad, also known as Zoothorn Rollo on guitar, uh, Jeff Cotton, also known as Antenna Jimmy Siemens, who, if you ask me, really got the short end of the stick when it comes to stage names on guitar, uh, Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton on bass, John French, also known as Drumbo on drums, and Don Van Vliet, uh, obviously, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart on vocals. The length of this track is a mighty 1 minute and 41 seconds. Uh, just getting in, getting out real fast. And uh, it was produced by Frank Zeppa. My guest is David Lipson. David is a professor of microbiology at San Diego State University. He's a good friend of mine and a fellow enthusiast for music that defies categorization. David, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for agreeing to participate in this. Um, this is, to part the kimono a bit, the first time I am recording one of these. So this is an experiment in seeing how this kind of discussion around this album is going to go. Uh, so, um, but David knows uh, far more about music and music theory than I do, than anyone else that I know. And uh, this is definitely an album where you could use a Sherpa who can uh, talk you through some of the, some of the permutations of what you're listening to. Um, so David, I know that you are a Zappa fan. Um that- Go ahead. That's correct. Yes. Uh, so I've been listening to Zappa and the Mothers since I was, frankly, before it was appropriate for an adolescent boy yep, same to here. listen to those things. Of course, there's so much in there for adolescent boys that maybe that's a contradiction. But but yeah, so I, I was aware of, uh, of Captain Beefheart from Hot Rats and fellow Zappa friends saying like, Captain Beefheart is amazing. But actually... Uh, I'm a beginner to this album. It's really thanks to you that I've been listening to this over and over and over again and trying to understand it. So, <laughs> well, I'm glad that I'm glad that I could could bring it to you. I'm I'm surprised that you that you hadn't heard it before, uh, given what I know of our shared musical tastes. Um, David is is one of the people I know where if he recommends you have to hear this, I immediately know. Well, yes, I have to hear this because we're our tastes are fairly well aligned, and we're both people who who are excited by things that are a little outside, outside standard, uh, standard listening fare. Um, so when you first, so this is the first song on the first side of the album, this, the intro with Frownland. This is, I mean, this is definitely a statement to start the album with this particular song. This is a statement of intent. Like we are, um, they're, they're not easing you in at all. This is, this is one of the more, on an album that has a reputation for being complicated and abrasive, this is probably one of the more complicated and abrasive tracks. Um, Absolutely. I, uh, I've gotten deeper and deeper, and the very first thing that strikes you is um, a relatively coherent vocal track over complete chaos. 
right? That's the first thing you hear. Um, and uh, it's always surprising to me that he can maintain what sounds like an almost traditional song structure with something completely defying all <laughs> normal sense of, you know, pulse and rhythm below that. Uh, and that was my first impression, of course. And I, I like you say, just st starts off the bat plunging yourself into chaos. <laughs> What's all the more remarkable about that is from, from what I understand, um, he didn't use headphones when he was recording his vocal tracks, that the band laid down all of their instrumental tracks in Whitney Studios in the space of about, I believe, just one recording day. I think they put them all down in about six hours, um, having rehearsed the hell out of it in their, their little house in, in Woodland Hills where they all live together. Um, and then the vocal tracks were recorded over the next couple of days and that Van Vliet refused to use headphones and so was just kind of singing along with the leakage that he could hear through the um through the uh engineering room glass honestly that makes a lot of sense because you know i think to not be distracted by the underlying chaos and you know produce a really smooth <laughs> performance i i feel like you have to ignore a lot and so in fact when i was listening to this and analyzing it i was kind of wishing i had a karaoke zapper uh, um, to like, let's turn down his vocals and try to listen to what's going on musically. I don't know if there's any karaoke machines that have that, uh, you know, uh, Captain Beefheart on it. That'd be amusing. I could absolutely clear out a, a bar um, if they had ca Captain Beefheart on karaoke because I would totally dominate and just holler all of these tracks. And eventually they would probably ask me to leave because everyone else would have left the bar. <laughs> But yeah, the the um, there actually are, if you search around on YouTube, there was a boxed set called Grow Fins that came out back in the late 90s, I think. Uh, and there are instrumental rehearsal tracks of the band working on this material um, in their house in Woodland Hills. And so you can hear some of the songs. I think Frownland is one of them. You can hear the entirety of the band playing without Van Vliet's vocals over it. So you can hear the intricacy of the music a bit, a bit more without his his voice just kind of obliterating everything. One of one of the people complain about the album not being terribly well mixed, and it does seem mixed for like maximum abrasiveness on some tracks. Like there there really isn't anything softening the blow. Um, but one big complaint I've heard is that his voice is mixed too loud. So frequently it's over kind of overshadowing what the band is doing. So you're only really hearing him kind of. Um, bellowing away and you can barely hear the band. Yeah, they may have been uh, a little miffed at first having had to work so excruciatingly hard on those tracks and then have it drown out. But fortunately for them, there's geeky scholars like us that are dissecting it and <laughs> rediscovering their interesting rhythms. Uh, I, one thing I'm going to see if um, Darren will include in the, the metadata for this recording is there's a really fantastic YouTube video by Samuel Andreev where he goes through and does a um, kind of music theory analysis of this track, like from all of the different uh, keys and rhythms and polyrhythms that are being used one after the other. And it's a pretty remarkable breakdown of how much is going on in this one minute, 41 second track. I, I pulled a quote uh, from an article uh, that uh, the article is written by an Eric Gudas. I think it was on All About Jazz. Uh, I'll get the actual citation, um, but I'm a librarian. I'm going to cite my sources on this podcast. Uh, he says, Andreev maps out how each song contains many mini songs. He calls them blocks, 
which change at intervals of roughly 20 to 30 seconds. Each shift block to block may be accompanied by a change of key, tempo, or other musical element. But to complicate things further, within each new musical block, the musicians may be playing at different tempos at all. For instance, Andrea points out at the beginning of Frownland, guitar one, bass and drums all play a seven-beat phrase, while the second guitar plays a five-beat phrase in a different tempo. And so you've got all of those, you've got different keys and rhythms all going on basically simultaneously. It'll seem to create, you can, your brain can just start to recognize a groove or recognize like, oh, okay, this instrument's doing this and this instrument's doing that and the other. And then within 20 seconds, it seems to have almost organically morphed into something else. Yes. And that's exactly what I noticed. It sounds like someone else has done a far more thorough music theory analysis than, than I have, but I'm glad that I didn't read that article before I plunged in because discovering it myself was so much more enjoyable, but I agree completely. And so once I started um, listening to that chaos, uh, I started to, I concluded that I was thinking more about every 12 seconds, there was a shift. Um, that sounds about a, right. I was just listening to it before yeah. we, before we started recording and it, it does seem like, yeah, you get maybe 10, 10 to 20, the longest section will be maybe 20 seconds. And then it's a shift. Yeah, these things almost function as uh, chord changes. Well, there are actually chord changes involved, but rather than having a classic, you know, one, four or five blues structure or something like that, you could just shift to a new form of chaos. And our ears, which are so used to having patterns and having, you know, coherent song structures, that functions as like, oh, now we've changed chord. In reality, we've just changed to a new form of chaos. <laughs> and it occurred to me, so uh, there's, to get, you know, this is one of those, I have a liberal arts education and you're going to hear about it, damn it moments but, uh, <laughs> we so got to make it we got to make it work for us somehow <laughs> yeah exactly so uh so there's a composition book i have by uh, hindemith you know and it's a fairly modern composition book that gets away from analyzing you know keys and, and chord structures and just talks about consonants versus dissonance and just this sort of cyclic moving away from consonants towards dissonance and back again and and really i think you can substitute for any chords, just uh, a block of noise <laughs> that either moves away to from your original home key or towards it. And um, it occurred to me, you could, you know, have a typical blues song where instead of your one, four or five chords, you could just put in, you know, three recognizable chunks of chaos. <laughs> that's kind of what I feel is going on in this song. And and cycle those rather than the one, four, five. It's like the one is this one block of sound and then the far is yeah, this other block like, of sound. Lawnmower, cars honking, birds. <laughs> but, well, from, so, from what I gather, that's not entirely outside of how they actually did compile this material because Van Vliet uh, wrote most of the music on the piano, uh, an instrument that he did not know how to play. Um, so he would have John French, uh, the drummer sitting by his side. He would kind of plunk away until he found something that I guess I'm, I'm presuming purely by ear, uh, would be something that he liked. And then French would transcribe that. And then slowly, but surely with these tiny little different riffs, basically, uh, they would compile them together into something that resembled um, a completed track. I, what the what the process was for determining 
yes, this is this is done, or this is this is uh, yeah, th- this goes with this. Is um, I mean, uh, French would would be the person who would who would be able to explain that, um, <laughs> which has led to. Well, I guess I mean you've you've you're a musician. You you have composed music. the The question comes back of authorship comes up a lot when people talk about Trout Mask Replica, and they say, "Well, Don Van Vliet didn't really know how to play the piano. He was more or less plunking away, kind of at random until he would get something that he liked. He would then have his drummer, um, which it seems diminutive to refer to John French. John French was a phenomenal musician as just his drummer, but you know the drummer in the band would transcribe all this stuff and would teach it to the other musicians. And then from what I understand, Van Vliet would essentially yell at them until it became something that they, that sounded like what he wanted it to sound like. Trust the um, process. I, I <laughs> <laughs> well, and as, as Robin Hitchcock pointed out, I mean, at the end of this horrible experience for all of these musicians concerned, they got trout mask replica, which many have suffered more for less. Um, but I don't imagine the band members feel that way about it. Uh, but I guess that that does raise, I mean, if we're going to talk about this traditional idea of composership and authorship as being, you know, the composer handing down their completed musical ideas to other people to interpret, can we consider Van Vliet to be the composer of this music, considering that he's approaching it from this very naive place of not really in any kind of technical sense knowing what he's doing, but having a feel for what he wanted? They always say that classical music is about the composition and jazz is about the performance. And certainly the performance is really important on this album. Right. And, uh, and, I, and I started really appreciating it. So the more I listened to it and th- this, this was a happy accident. Um, I was sort of throwing higher end software and trying to analyze this music that maybe was necessary if I had a better ear, <laughs> but I ended up first just listening to one track accidentally. I was listening to the right track, which, ended up being really helpful because that got rid of half of the distracting chaos. Um, and I start to see, so you, you uh, already raised that the beat of seven. So finally, like, yes, there is a pulse. It's seven, which of course is not traditional and odd, but still, and, um, and there are actual chord changes and realize the whole thing is in basically like, as far as I can tell, C major, A minor. Um, and when you listen to, you know, there, there are actually, um, it's really hard to hear when you hear the entire block of music, but dissecting it out, um, I was hearing all these nice little details that the musicians were doing, which I don't know how much that was completely prescribed by Don Van Vliet, but <laughs> uh, at some point there's, like, for example, uh, there's one point um, maybe in about the... 34 to 32nd, 24 to 32nd ratio uh, range, where it's a little bit of a Phrygian mode, playing like C major over E minor, kind of Spanish guitar style. <laughs> and, uh... I cannot go back to your land of gloom, where black jagged shadows remind me of the coming of your doom. And that was fortunately all just listening to one track. Then I accidentally started listening to both tracks. And I realized on top of this stuff, suddenly there's like a country riff. <laughs> just like, near, 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 which would seem completely out of place, but just throw it on top of it. So uh, 
I guess I don't know how much of every little detail of the chaos he was controlling. It sounds from your description like a tremendous amount of it. Well, from what I understand, I, I what um, Samuel Andreev has been doing some really great work with interviewing old Magic Band members um, on his YouTube channel. Uh, and I watched the interview he did with Art Trip, who did not play on this album, but was on uh, Lick My Decals Up Off Baby and a bunch of other Beefheart records and also played with Zappa. And uh, Trip was a like classically trained percussionist. And from what he said, sometimes they would th- like throw things in and change them. And Don wouldn't necessarily be able to tell because it was he he didn't have the kind of minute control over things like i mean zappa was a taskmaster as well but it was a he had like this background of compositional training and expected everyone to play exactly what was on the page at the same time um from what trip said van vliet wasn't necessarily able to tell if they would change arrangements around or add in bits here and there unless it was really egregious like if someone had just ripped off onto a guitar solo he probably would have noticed that but um it, I, it seems to me like he was, there was more of a feel that he was after and more of a general sense. His, the one thing Tripp said, and I've heard, I've read other Magic Band members say is that he expected everyone to be playing at 100% intensity all the time. Like there was never a point where you could just kind of play a relaxed part or lay back or something. You had to be, you know, hitting your instrument at top force from the Beat beginning of for Christ's sake as yeah. some Jap album said yeah that comes yeah exactly <laughs> yeah like yeah. fingers bleeding um they played with metal picks um Mark Boston the the bass player Rocket Morton said that he started using like banjo finger picks to be able to play the chords uh, the way that Van Vliet wanted them to sound he said his he basically started playing his bass like a fat banjo which is a description I really liked <laughs> so I wonder, you you know, again, far more about this album than, than is probably healthy for anyone to know. Um, yeah, probably. So as I was uncovering, you know, uncovering in my mind a fairly melodic structure underlying it, you know, you have to print it way back down to suddenly hear these chords, but it's all, you know, it's all pretty much white keys, <laughs> you know, and uh, I was it occurred to me like, Oh my God, I could turn this into a Bruce Springsteen song. I would probably get shot for doing this, but has anyone done that? <laughs> you know, I, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was looking at that, at that more from the perspective of the lyrics on this track, because the, um, and I get absolutely get what you're saying when it comes to, like, if you isolate any one, um, riff from this, it's fairly tonal and not unpleasant to the ear. Um, like Andre, I think Andrea makes the point. People call this album atonal. It's not atonal. It's polytonal. Like they're they're all playing in a key. It's just not always necessarily the same key at the same time. Um, and yeah, any one guitar riff isolated from this is not um, is not particularly abrasive to the ear. It's the way that they're kind of fused together in this uh, lurching monstrosity, um, <laughs> which I which I say with an enormous amount of affection. Uh, I. It's probably self-evident, considering that I'm trying to do an entire podcast, but I adore this album. And um, I know when Darren does track by track at the end of each um, episode, he will rate each song on a scale of one to five, like four out of five, three out of five. Um, I'm 
uh, you like if the guests that I have, David and, and anyone else who's going to end up being on the show, uh, they, they are welcome to rate any track if they want. They're all going to be five out of five for me. So I don't know if it's <laughs> going to be something that I'm even going to bother doing. And that's just because I don't feel like to me that that feels like looking at a dolphin and going, that's maybe a four out of five dolphin. <laughs> it's like you can't compare these tracks to anything else. This is its own strange entity. And you just have to kind of take it as it is. There's certainly songs on here I like more than other songs, but they're all these just phenomenal achievements of something truly singular. And the ones that I've initially volunteered to discuss with you are were really included most of my favorite ones. So this one, right off the bat, I just, I love the song. It's catchy, strangely enough, the driving energy. And, and I, you know, again, now that I've taken it apart, there's like a great, you know, seven, you know, bass riff that you can hear for the first 12 seconds. It's like, and it's like, it's a great bass riff that you can forget is in an awkward rhythm. <laughs> and, uh, and then of course, you know, given what he's talking about uh, in these lyrics, it's got freedom from structure and traditional dogmatic modes. It's, it's perfect that the music underlying it is so completely free. Yeah, that's that was one of the things I, when I was looking over. So, I mean, Van Vliet's uh, obviously remarkable voice is is one of the first things that anyone notes about about the Magic Band, I think. And and I mean, you heard him on Hot Rats prior to hearing any of the the Beefheart stuff, so you knew, you know, the kind of. Um, I mean, Howlin' Wolf is the the standard comparison when people talk about his yeah. singing voice, but it's a much more uh, wild and elastic version of, of Wolf's growl that uh, he, he, there's an almost cartoonish um, ability to adopt other voices and, f- and fly into other registers um, that is, uh, can, can be a little alarming. Uh, <laughs> sometimes there are some vocal deliveries on this album that sound just incredibly agitated. Um, but the, his, uh, the brilliance of his lyrics also, which is one area where we're, where any kind of sense of authorship is obviously his, he, he wrote every lyric on this album and they are, um, there really wasn't anything else going on in popular music at the time that has this level of, um, the vividness of the imagery and the wildness of the wordplay, the, um, the, the kind of, uh, Americana infused surrealism that uh, that defines his work there's like this uh the love of nature imagery love of um wild colorful imagery uh in mike barnes's biography of beef he breaks down every different animal that gets mentioned on this this album there's like a there's a whole zoo full of animals that get mentioned on <laughs> trout mask um it's interesting to me though starting with Frownland, that the lyrics on this if you if you've never heard the song and you simply look at the lyrics it's not hugely different from a lot of other 1960s um, uh, where the flower children were going to find a better world kind of songs. Like this was a very strong theme in 1960s um, pop music and rock music of we're making, we're going to make a better world. The young people oh, yeah. are going to find a better way. Um, rejecting the, uh, the authority and the, right. The existing modes of thought. And the whole the the singer posing himself uh, or or 
herself, himself in this case, as kind of the psychopomp who's going to take you into this new world is also like, I mean, Jimi Hendrix had Are You Experienced? And um, the, there were numerous other far, probably far less memorable or, or remarkable groups doing variations on the same kind of idea of like, come with me and I'm going to take you and show you something that's, you know, this new way of living that's remarkable, um, you know, with the underlying current of, you know, hallucinogens probably being involved <laughs> so if you just look at the lyrics and it's funny that you mentioned springsteen i was thinking this if you were to take just the lyrics of this track and set them to like a crosby stills and nash kind of background like a very easygoing <laughs> acoustic guitar like the, the lyrics might come off as a little odd but it could pass for standard hippie fare in some ways like there's there's certainly images in here that you're not going to hear in other uh, 60s music, like the, you know, my smile is stuck. I cannot go back to your frown land. And then the the immediate nature imagery, my spirit is made up of the ocean and the sky and the sun and the moon and all my eye can see. And that's, that's very, that the back to nature aspect of the, the hippie culture. Um, I don't know if, if Van Vliet would have de- described himself as a hippie, but I mean, that's certainly part of the milieu of what's going on in the sixties at that time. Um, I cannot go back to your land of gloom where black jagged shadows remind me of the coming of your doom. That's the black jagged shadows. That's one of the first on this album, the first really striking um, image. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to, we'll talk about some of the later tracks that are just filled with biblical vivid imagery like that. Um, But I think you mentioned to me once that when he's talking about, you know, take my hand, come with me or whatever the line is. <laughs> not too late for you. It's not too late for me. You saw it with some kind of almost menace. Uh, um. If you were to, again, if you were to take that music, uh, take those lyrics. And if it were like the sweet acoustic guitar background, I was like, take my hand and come with me, you know, which I just realized that I'm singing that to the tune of the monkeys theme. Um, <laughs> but it would be like this sweet, like, Oh, we're going to go on a fun adventure together. You know, that it's, it would not have any menace, but with, the music behind it, which is um, to the average listener, probably kind of off-putting and the intensity with which he is delivering that line. Um, I actually found this, this quote it's from the, the Eric Gudis um, article, which uh, on the all about jazz, is it all about jazz? Yes. All about jazz site. Um, he says, thing was no way did you want to take this singer's, this hollerer's hand. The whole group emanated brilliant metallic unhingedness, which is a really great description, I think. And it's like, yeah, the, this this sounds frightening. This sounds like, uh, no, I really don't think I want to go with you to your where it land where your smile is stuck. This sounds this. There's a um, there's an a definite sense of um, uncontrollable chaos and. Uh, <laughs> I love that observation because, and this just shows that um, you know this band well enough to not trust them completely. <laughs> Whereas, <laughs> you know, as a beginner, it, I, I did take it as face value and uh, saw nothing threatening in it. Of course, again, it's the first song on the album, and I may have had regrets taking his hand after somewhere in the middle of Neon Meat Dream. <laughs> There's a passage of about three or four songs around the i think probably uh, i'd have to look at the actual structuring but i think it's near the 
side one of um, the second album that I think of as like the roughest patch on this record. It's like there's Pina, Neon Meat, Dream of an Octofish, uh, Hair Pie Bake 2. There's a, a succession of songs that are are not just musically, but lyrically kind of upsetting. And I love all of them, but it's um, it's the patch on the album where you do you just start to feel a little bit like, did I know what I signed up for <laughs> when I started listening to this from beginning to end? Yeah, there was a, in preparing to talk with you about these albums, I was or this album, I was listening to it repeatedly. And of course, nowadays, lots of stress in the world and in my life. And at a certain point, I was like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm going home from work now and I'm going to listen to this <laughs> relaxing album. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it does. Um, at, what's at the same time, though, I don't think he or any of the rest of the band necessarily intended it to have an undercurrent of menace, particularly not on Frownland. I don't think he's actually... Con- well, attributing any kind of consciousness to an artist uh, or intent to an artist, that's a dangerous game because I don't really fully know what he intended with this track. Obviously, I'm just extrapolating from what I know. I, I don't think he intended it to have an undercurrent of being frightening. Like I don't think to Van Vliet's ears, this music was off-putting. I think this was exactly what he wanted to hear. And there's there's a sense of there's certainly not a playfulness in the actual recording of the album because it was pretty painful affair for the band, but that there is a sense of playfulness in his lyrics and in certain aspects of how the music fits together. So I think it, it seems to me like the the menace is, is is purely an extrapolation on the listener's part of like the di- dichotomy between this, you know rather cheerful invitation to take my hand and come with me to this land where there's not an, there's not an ego flying, which is freaking hilarious considering the amount of ego. <laughs> there might be one or two egos there, but there's some pretty big egos flying around. Um, uh, but, but you know, no, no man dying by an earthly hand. That sounds pretty good. I'd like to go where there's no one dying by an earthly hand, especially, I mean, you know, again, parting the kimono a bit, we're recording this in the depths of the uh, COVID-19 crisis so you know no man dying by an earthly hand sounds pretty great i'd like to go there right now but it's like you say uh when you're really talking about freedom and that is a terrifying concept you know you you could idealize the idea of freedom but people cling to ancient obsolete structures for a reason you know that's what they know they're familiar and so absolutely this album completely insistently finding you know novelty and, and disrupting patterns. I mean, this, this whole song structure, if you're going to call it, that is all about disrupting patterns and expectations. And, and so, yeah, that sort of underlying uncertainty is something you have to accept <laughs> if you're going to uh, reject the, the orthodoxy, I suppose. So, yeah, that, yeah. And yeah, that line, it's not too late for you. If it's not too late for me to find find our own land or find my own land. Let me see. I'm going to look up the exact lyrics because I, I don't want to. Uh, it's not too late for you. If it's not too late for me to find my homeland. Oh, I was mishearing it. I was hurt because uh, he says, I want my own land earlier on to yeah, find my homeland. That's, that's really interesting that it's not, it's not simply, it's not like, Hey, I've just created this new world. Let's go. It's like, no, this is where I'm from. This is where, you know, uh, 
my smile is stuck and you can come with me. But yeah, you, it feels like that's the invitation in the matrix where it's like, if you're going to take this pill and I know, I know red pill has been co-opted by, by jerks. Um, but the original metaphor is still a strong one that, you know, if you take this pill, you're going to see things the way they actually are. And that's going to be, you know, that's going to break your mind. Um, that's just the first, what did you say? Minute and 40 seconds. Minute and 41 <laughs> seconds. Yeah. Minute and 41 seconds of this really pretty astonishing record. And, um, the, there's a quote from, from Langdon winner, um, about this record that or about Frownland, which is Beefheart is not concerned to build bridges for his audience or to make it any easier for anyone to come along. Either you're interested or you're not. Which which describes a lot of the feel of the song to me. It's like, yeah, you you can come. It, you know, you're you're welcome to come along, but there's absolutely no suggestion whatsoever that it's going to be an easy journey. Because of his amazing voice, uh, there was pressure for him to just be like the next big blues singer. You know, for a white audience, probably. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and so I guess he got around that pitfall pretty early. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, the the initial incarnation of the Magic Band, um, which has other than, well, John French wasn't the original drummer, but he had joined by the time they did Safe as Milk. Um, a lot of the members of the band just would kind of fall away because they kept getting farther and farther from doing, you know, blues and R&B. Um, you know, Ry Cooter plays on Safe as Milk and, uh, you know, had left left shortly thereafter. Um, not solely because they were moving away from R&B, mostly because Van Vliet was such an unreliable and difficult person to work with. Um, but yeah, he, as as he continued to move further and further from traditional blues structure, you know, the members of the band that had initially formed to be a blues band kind of fell away. Um, and I think, again, you know, attributing intent to an artist without actually having been there is, is a dangerous game, but clearly Zappo was seeing success doing pretty experimental music. Um, you know, he was playing stadiums with the mothers doing pretty much exactly what he wanted to do, making this kind of, um, uh, somewhat discordant, unusual music and, you know, Van Vliet being given the opportunity by Zappo to do pretty much whatever he wanted, uh, saw the opportunity to make something, you know, incredibly personal and quite possibly believed that he would achieve great success from it. He certainly achieved great, he and the band achieved great artistic success. Um, the album actually, uh, in reading in Mike Barnes's book, did surprisingly well in England. Like it, it actually charted in England, which is the idea of this record charting. I, I can't even really fully, re- like it charted fairly low. It's not like it was number right. one or anything, but it's it, just the idea of this album being, uh, enough people buying this and hearing this to for it to chart and I, I don't mean that to sound like dismissive of the album it's just like this is to me that's like finding out ulysses was a bestseller you know it's like really that many people were willing to do that huh and and this probably belongs on a different episode of your podcast but i pulled out my old uncle meat album oh sure and and uh which must have come out around the same time because it's filled with references to uh, it's got, for example, I was really curious about Fast and Bulbous, and it says on here, Fast and Bulbous Jelly was invented by Don Vliet. Yep. And uh, and it also has in this little cartoon booklet, um, a giraffe is listening to the radio, and the song on the radio is Moonlight on Vermont. 
just before uh, a dollfoot rifle gets inserted into the uh, giraffe's rectum. Anyway, <laughs> Uncle Meat, it's a classic. Uh, but but I digress. Um, but and uh, so this, in short, uh, actually listening to this album, um, to Trap Mask Replica, filled up filled in some puzzle pieces for me for my early formative Frank Zappa listening years. <laughs> yeah. I remember um, the fast and bulbous getting, getting referenced on, on uncle me has been many years since I've, I've heard that album. Unfortunately, I think I'm gonna have to dig it out now after we're, we're talking about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, Zappa was a huge, was, was very much a booster of, of Van Vliet and essentially gave him carte blanche to do what he wanted on the record. Um, and yeah, the that this album would not exist without Zappa, you know, giving Van Vliet the opportunity to record this for Zappa's label. It's kind of staying out of the way and letting him do what he wanted to do musically and production wise. Uh, and also, um, you know, being willing to deal with with Van Vliet's flights of ego uh, in the studio. Uh, he said something along the lines of this had been recorded by, a rel- you know, an actual professional producer. There would have been a number of suicides involved. <laughs> just yeah i mean these guys were old friends these guys were old friends they'd grown up together in lancaster california and you know uh listened to old old blues records together and um had had the kind of contentious relationship that uh old friends who are basic who are pretty close to brothers who also both have like titanic egos can only have (laughs) and i do remember a, a uh interview with frank zappa saying that he basically allowed uh, this album to involve completely inadvisable recording techniques that as a producer, <laughs> he would just generally never stood for, but, you know, he stood back and let it happen. And I think that was good. <laughs> yeah. That, that makes me think of what Steve Albini says about recording bands that he just, rather than taking the credit of producer, he always just says recorded by, because it's like, <laughs> Yeah, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but that doesn't mean I'm prepared to take any um, guff for any poor decisions that you choose to make. It's like, you know, yeah, I'll do exactly what you want me to do and I'll record it to the best of my ability. But if you decide to do something stupid, then that's on you. It's like begrudgingly recorded by. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Recorded with gritted teeth by Steve Albini. Uh, who who I should say I I like and admire. Um, being a jerk about it, being a jerk about him, but I do I have a lot of admiration for Albini. Um, but yeah, this you know this is a, a cultural artifact that wouldn't exist without. And to some degree, and I've been trying to track down where I read this. Zappa had a fair amount to do with the sequencing of the album, and I do think that's that it is sequenced to demonstrate the remarkable variety of the record that it goes from this track, which is a full band track, one minute and 41 seconds of just kind of being very in your face and abrasive and um, just dunking you in head first into this music. And then it goes into the dust blows forward and the dust blows back, which is this kind of somewhat idyllic acapella track um, where he's singing about, you know, going, going, it's about a fishing holiday. Basically it, it really does. It's disorienting, but it also shows you, how much there is here you know that that this is not simply a one one type of music one type of thing that a vast amount of sound and experience is contained within 
Yeah, and shows off his vocal styles, like you'd mentioned earlier. Uh, the, the contrast between those two songs is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, because he really there from the agitated hollering of of Frownland, you've got this, you know, um, kind of Harry Parch inflected, you know, hobo lilt of <laughs> Dust Blows Forward. But that's that's for another episode. Uh, so, do you have any uh, last thoughts on Frownland? Well, I think that we've covered it uh, pretty thoroughly, even down to the rhythm and melody and deeper implications. <laughs> so I'm, I'm well, satisfied. We, we've certainly gone on 20 times longer than the actual recorded track. So I feel like he said in one minute and 41 seconds what it's taken us, you know, 42 minutes to unpack. Um, and there's probably a lot more that could be said about it. But like, like I said earlier, um, in terms of giving these tracks any kind of rating, um, I, you know, everything on this album is such a unique creature for me that I don't feel like I can say uh, all right David do you want to give this a, a, a rating out of five? Oh yeah so this was one of my favorites so it gets my full rating I, I have I have no further input for Mr. Vleet <laughs> <laughs> you don't have any notes you don't want to come back to him with oh. any notes about like yeah yeah I think he did fine <laughs> okay um, good that's that's that is a solid a solid a from both of us for for Don Vliet on and his his magic band on Frownland. Um so for this podcast, um if you want to follow it on Twitter, it is at underscore track by track. Um if you want to follow me on Twitter, which uh, is probably inadvisable, but if you want to, I'm at, at Joel A. Bacher. That's Bacher with two K's. Same thing on Instagram. Uh David, do you have anything that you want to plug in terms of uh following or just anything you want to point people in a particular direction? For the most part, I, I'm in my secret identity right now talking to you about this. Um, but if I have any identity that is compatible with all this countercultural music, it would be Evil Dr. Lipschitz. Ah, yes. Evil Dr. Lipschitz on, on Bandcamp. Check yes. it out. There's some excellent uh, kind of collage uh, music concrete work that David has done with Natural Sounds. Uh, with the sounds of uh, his beloved cat, Odin, who, sa- who sadly passed away last year. R.I.P. Odin. We loved him dearly. Um, and there's uh, all, all kinds of, it's a gateway to even more, uh, even more wild music. So co-signed, check out Evil Dr. Livshits. Thank you. Okay. And so I believe that is uh, going to wrap it up. So this has been Track by Track. Uh, my name is Joel. We are discussing Trout Mask Replica by Captain Beefheart. And I don't have any kind of fancy, cool sign-off that I've come up with yet. So, and uh, I'll see you next time for Dust Blows Forward and Dust Blows Back. Thank you for listening. Let the devil burn in a beggar land And the little girls are living those old worlds Take my kind hand My smile is stuck I cannot go back to your frown land I cannot go back to your frown land <laughs>